0: Now, we're going to read through Hebrews 11. I'm actually only going to focus in on one verse. I suppose you could play guess the verse as I go along, but uh, we'll see. I'll start reading through Hebrews 11 and we'll see how how far we get. So, from verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was is seen uh, was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered a God a better, offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he couldn't experience death. He couldn't be found because God had taken him away, for he was taken, for before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes from faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as in his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith he, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he himself, he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as, and he is good as dead... ...came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky... ...and countless as all the sand on the seashore. Um, We'll just skip to verse 17. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son... ...even though God had said to him, It's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead... ...and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead... By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's Egypt. It it goes on and, and lists more. We'll stop there. Um, this is a, a passage um, which is often described as kind of a roll call of the heroes of faith. It talks about what faith is, to start off with, and then it's, it's kind of a list of Old Testament characters who had gone before, and, uh, and the writers of the Hebrews is saying that these guys, are comm- and, and women, because uh, um, Rahab comes up and, and Deborah, um, these guys are, are commended for their faith. Um, now as we read this and we see all these amazing people who, who have gone before Noah building the ark Abraham leaving his home and obeying God Moses uh, goes on to say chooses to be ill treated with his people rather than living a life of luxury with the Egyptians there's one or two of those that we might have a tendency just to skip over and uh, today I want to look at, at one of those. So I wonder if, if you were trying to guess where we were going to focus in on today. I wonder how many of you thought we were going to focus in on Jacob. Anyone think that that was the one I was going to be looking at today, Jacob? See, there you are. I am. <laughs> no one. Um, <laughs> if, we just, if we just read this passage, we don't get too many clues about Jacob. It says is commended, this is verse 21... We're looking at them. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. Now, when you compare that to some of these great escapades that have gone before Noah, building this amazing ark, Moses saying, I'm going I'm to go back and be with my people, the Israelites, instead of this luxury that I've got in, uh, in Egypt. Abraham uh, going uh, leaving his home, leaving his family, going where God had asked him to go, you might come and think, well, Jacob, what's he done? He's blessed each of Joseph's sons, that's one of his sons, and he worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. That might seem quite a minor thing. In fact, if you get children's Bibles, and we've got a few children's Bibles in our home now, I look through, you don't actually see Jacob featuring very much in children's Bibles. A lot of them don't have him in at all, and the ones that do have kind of weird little bits of his life in that you think, well, why did he put that in? Um, But there's actually 13 chapters of the Old Testament dedicated to Jacob, 13 chapters. That is quite a lot. I wonder why he doesn't appear in many children's Bibles. I think maybe that is because, maybe like me, you find it quite hard to warm to Jacob. If you read the account in Genesis, and we're going to just do a a whistle-stop tour through Jacob's life this morning. If you read it, you might think, actually, Jacob isn't a very nice man. In fact... Jacob appears in what used to be one of my least favorite Bible passages. You know how people have these lists of favorite Bible passages and they, and they keep going to them. I used to have a list of least favorite Bible passages. And Jacob appeared in one of my least favorite Bible passages. Uh, in fact, it, it comes twice. This is what it was. It's not, <laughs> it's not my least favorite now. But it used to be. Mal- uh, let's go Malachi 1 and verse 2. If you don't know where Malachi is... Go to the start of the New Testament, Matthew, and then go back two pages, and you'll get to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. And Paul in Romans 9.13 makes the same point that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, I used to look at that passage, and I used to think, well, what's all that about? How come God loves Esau? I have problems with it on that level. I, I, you know, never mind God hating Esau. How can God hate someone and all, all of that? We're not, we're not even going to go there today. But how could God love Jacob when you read about him in the Old Testament? Um, it was a bit like, I don't know if it, this has reminded me of it, we've, we've just started to, to go through. You know when you get DVDs out of old TV series you used to watch when you were younger? We're going through Dallas. All right? <laughs> hey. uh, so it's a bit like saying, God loved Jr. but hated Bobby. You think, no, it's the wrong way around. How can God love Jr. For those who are under 40, <laughs> Jr. and Bobby were two brothers who, who lived on South Fork. J.R. was scheming and manipulative and always trying to get his own way. And he flattered people and he was just horrible. Bobby was the younger brother who was just kind of, you know, a lot nicer, but a bit wet. He was good at fighting. That's about it. Anyway... <laughs> I have problems because to me, it seemed that Jacob is like J.I. You'll see what I mean in a few minutes' time. Let me spend a few minutes filling you in. If you don't know the Old Testament story, you are going to know the account of Jacob in Genesis within the next three hours. (laughs) I'll try and make it a bit faster. It's good to look at this because it's good to wrestle with passages, I believe, in the Bible, which seem difficult. You know, you can get passages that you just think, what is that about? You can have two different responses, can't you? You can just think, I just don't get that. I'll shelve it. You know, I'll go on to my list of favorite Bible passages. That's okay then. But actually, God has written the whole Bible for our um, edification, for our instruction to teach us about him. And... These verses, which could seem problematic and could seem unfair, actually teach us quite a lot about God. So it's always good to wrestle with these passages. You know, don't, don't just look at passages in the Bible, and, th- you know, classic ones like how um, husbands and wives should relate to each other. You know, it's no good looking at that and going, oh, I just don't understand that, that doesn't seem right. Shelve that one, I'll just do it my own way. You know, let's wrestle with them and see what these, bi- these verses are saying and see what it tells us about God. So we first come across Jacob in Genesis 25. Now, we're not going to read the whole 13 chapters. It's all right. But I'm going to skip through and read individual verses. I'm going to make Steve work quite hard here on um, the AV. We first come across Gen- uh, Jacob in Genesis 25 and verse 22. And it's talking about um, Isaac's wife, Rebecca. ...becoming pregnant. And in verse 22 of Genesis 25, it says... ...the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So, Rebecca's having twins and they're fighting inside her. Um, You know you're going to have problems with your kids... ...if your twins start fighting with each other inside their mother's womb. Um, so, she's quite concerned about this, and she goes to God about it, and he tells her that two nations were in her womb, and one is going to be stronger than the other. The older one would serve the younger. Now, I suppose if she'd have gone to the doctors, he probably wouldn't have said that. Um, but she didn't go to the doctors. She went to God. And God's saying, well, these two nations are in your womb. Oh, my, goodness. no wonder it's bad. Two nations in my womb. And and one of the children, one of the next, is going to be stronger than the other, the older would serve the younger. So when she gave birth, they were still at it. All right? It says the time came for her to, to give birth. Esau comes out first. He's the older, he's red and hairy. And Jacob comes out, following. And Jacob is grabbing on to Esau's heel as he comes out of the womb. I wonder if that's happened to anyone who's had twins. Jacob's grabbing on to Esau's heel. um, And that's why he was named Jacob. The word Jacob means heel grasper. (laughs) Good name, eh? Or deceiver. Maybe not. Um, Jacob, from this point on, we see in the account in Genesis, gets what he wants by tricking or deceiving others. Very much like J.R. did. Many people in society, I guess, are like this. You see a number of people who try and get what they want by tricking or deceiving others. Um, I was just reading the paper this morning, just before I came out, and there was a, a, an article saying how university um, students are tricking their way into university by lying on their application forms about their family's background and so they were trying to get a university place because they were lying about their family's background they were trying to get what they want by manipulating the truth by deceiving people you see it all the time people do it on their job applications people think, oh I'm not going to get the job if I don't don't say I've got GCE or GCSE in maths and English so I'll just put it on I'll just just twist the truth a little bit about this last job that I had and um, I'll say I was there for three years and actually I was only there for three months but they probably won't check it up so I'll get away with it people manipulate and deceive not just in those areas but all sorts of life because they want to get what they want It's it's just the world's way of getting what you want and that's what Jacob was like when the boys grew up Jacob is still at it. He tricks Esau, his older brother, into selling his birthright. And that's all the advantages that came from being the firstborn son. He was obviously keen to be the firstborn son. That's why he's grabbing hold of the heel to start off with and come back. You know, I'm going out first. But no, he's second out. But he's tricking, he tricks Esau into his birthright. Um, And uh, he, he makes some stew. And Esau comes in and says, oh, I'm starving, give me some food. And Jacob goes, I'll give you some food, but you give me the birthright. Oh, I'm really hungry, I'm dying, Esau says. So Jacob says, well, here it is, just give me the birthright. And so that's what they do. Esau despises his birthright, the Bible says. Obviously, he didn't value it very strongly. But Jacob gets it by trickery and by deception and by playing on people's weaknesses. Not particularly Nice. Then in chapter 27, we see uh, that Isaac is about to give Esau a blessing before he dies. Bless him again as the oldest son. And this time, Jacob's mother helps him as well. And uh, tricks Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Isaac. And so they they have this whole thing where he makes a meal and and he he puts sort of hair on his arm because Esau's hairy. So Isaac's going blind at this point. He can't see which son is which. And so he's like feeling his arms. Oh, yeah, lots of hair there. You must be Esau. Jacob lies about it and says, yeah, I am Esau. So Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob, totally tricking um, his dad, totally tr- uh, tricking his, his, his brother out of the blessing that he was going to have. Esau is not very happy about this. In uh, chapter 27 and verse 34, we see this um, when Esau heard his father's words um, and that uh, that he'd be, he'd be blessed Jacob, when Esau heard his father's words he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and he said to his father, bless me too. Me too, my father. Um, but Isaac said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He's deceived me these two times. He's took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Esau's not happy at all about this. In fact, he points out these aptly names, but then Esau bears a grudge about it. And he sets out and he thinks, I've had enough of this. I'm going to kill my brother. He's, he's just done too much. He's going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob has to flee, has to run away, and he ends up being gone for, for 20 years. So Esau's home, uh, Jacob's home life is just one story after another of deception And manipulation. And it doesn't stop there. He runs away. But as he's going, he encounters God in a dream. And this is the first of several times that Jacob encounters God in a powerful way. Now, that might be a surprise to start off with. But this is what happens. So let's have a look at this one in a bit more detail. Chapter 28 and verse 10. Jacob has a dream. Um, It says, um, chapter 28... Verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and and with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, and the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is when Jacob awoke from the sleep, he he said, he thought, surely the Lord's in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place, none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he'd put under his head and set it as a pillar uh, and poured, not a pillow, a pillar, And poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So he encounters God in this vision. And basically what God is saying to him is pretty much the same as what God said to Abraham um, earlier. This this promise that generations coming from him will be blessed. And uh, quite an amazing uh, vision that has come through and the dream that he's got. Now, he sees this, he realises it's God, but even in his response... To me, he seems to be attaching a few other conditions to God. Now, okay, God has said, I'm with you, I'll watch over you, and I'll bring you back to this land. But Jacob is starting to, to almost put a few more things in there in verse 20. He says, if God will be with me and will watch over me, I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear um, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Um, it's almost this, like, Okay, God, well, if you'll do this, 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 and this, then I'll worship you. That's the conditions that I'm going to set. He's had this amazing encounter with God, this dream of God saying all, all this, uh, descendants will be blessed, all peoples on earth will be blessed by you and your offspring. And Jacob's saying, well, I'll do this, and if you do this and do this and do this, then I will do that. He's setting conditions. Compare that to say um, how Abraham responded in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4 when he had the similar word from God, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, um, it just says, So Abraham left, as the lo- Abraham, Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So he just goes. He doesn't say, Okay, well, if you are going to do this, and you are going to do this, and you are going to do this, then maybe I'll consider it, and I might give you a tenth of my, of my income. He's just saying, Yeah, I'm going, God. I'll go wherever you say. And it's easy to hear promises from God and then start to attach our own conditions and start to put odd things in there that actually God hasn't said. You know, God said much of that, but he didn't say everything. He didn't say he would always just give him food. He didn't say he'd always give him clothes. So... He's attaching extra conditions. And we can decide how we want things to happen. We can hear something from God and say, Okay, God, if you do that in my life, I'll follow you. Rather than just saying, God, you are God. I'm going to follow you, whatever. I'm going to follow you, whatever happens in my life, I'm not going to turn. And we can say, well, we'll worship you if you do things our way. As long as things go well, then we'll worship you. If things start to go a bit more difficult, we might start to think, well, what's happened to God? I thought God was with me. God never promises that trouble won't come. Many Christians fall apart when that happens. Again, a, a different attitude to Jacob was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, uh, in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is always the hardest one for me to find in the Bible. I, can never, I should have put a, a bookmark in it. Here we are. It's after Ezekiel. Um, the book of Daniel, chapter 3. In verse 17, the king's Nebuchadnezzar is about to throw them into the fiery furnace if they don't renounce God and worship him. And uh, in verse 17, they say, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us from it, and he'll rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So they're trusting in faith that God's going to, to take care of them, but not to the extent of I am absolutely 100% convinced that this is going to work out in the way that I have I've planned in my mind. They're saying, but even if he doesn't, he's got the right not to. Even if he doesn't rescue us, even if this is the place where we die, we're going to worship him anyway. We're not going to turn our backs on him. It's not going to be conditional responses to us worshiping God. As long as he saves us, then we'll worship him. But if he doesn't, that's it. It's so encouraging when we see Christians worshipping God despite all of the tragic circumstances in their lives. I've, this week, there's a couple of people who are, have come to my attention who have worshipped God and glorified God through awful situations in their life. One I read about in this book I was reading. He lived, it was a guy called Horatio Spafford. He lived in 1873. And I read about him in this, uh, this book. God Stories by Andrew Wilson. It's an excellent book. It, when the bookshop's open, um, you'll be able to buy this. It's fantastic. And you'll be able to find out a lot about Old Testament characters and how that ties in with the New Testament. Funnily enough, Jacob's not in it. And, um, but, but anyway, Horatio Spafford um, wrote some worship songs. And he wrote one in 1873. After his only son had died in 1871... And then a great, the great Chicago fire brought him to financial ruin. And then two years later, his four daughters all died in a shipping collision in the Atlantic. So he's had a pretty rough time of it. He's been made, he's a bit like a Job sort of character. He's lost his son, he's lost all his four daughters, and he's been brought to financial ruin. After that, he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul, soul. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpets shall sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You just think, what amazing words written by a guy who's lost everything. Lost everything humanly. But he's glorifying and praising God. A more modern day example. I've been, I was listening to a song uh, written by a guy called Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's an American singer of, uh, and writer of Christian songs. And uh, the song I was listening to was about his daughter. And he'd written it. Uh, he'd adopted uh, this, this girl and a couple of other girls, Chinese girls. They were four or five years old. And he'd written it about her and about how important it was to spend time with her before she got too old and, and sort of left home. Uh, and she should be gone soon. And then uh, I read about the history that happened after he'd written that song, that this girl um, was killed by her brother reversing the car into the drive uh, of their house. And he ran her over and killed her on the day of the um, engagement party that they were having for one of his other daughters. You think, how awful. How does that affect a man like this? But then you read on and, and you can find all about this. The, the song's called Cinderella Song, um, but you can, you can Google it and find out more. I found, um, you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman got invited on to so many TV programs, and he was he was just telling people about how his hope was eternal, how his hope was in, in God, and how that wasn't wavering, and his family were there with him. And you think, how some awful tragedy happens, but... It's not shaking his faith. There's pain there. It's not gone. They were, you know... he, He was singing the song afterwards with tears in his eyes. His family all in tears. But they're glorifying God. Because God is always worthy of being glorified. Whatever the circumstances in our life. We don't set conditions. We don't say, we'll worship you as long as things go our way. What a testimony to an amazing God. But Jacob... In my view, this is maybe just my, my spin on it because he's not a favorite character of mine. To me, he seems to be putting extra things in. Anyway, he goes to Haran and he stays with his uncle Laban and he falls in love with Rachel, his cousin, who he, he marries. He also marries his, his, her other sister, Leah, because he's tricked himself by Laban into marrying her. And there's, there's a lot there I haven't got time to go into. He has lots of children uh, with both of his wives. He also has children with their maidservants as well. He seems to be... Um, having children with anyone, um, you know, around. And after all of that, he decides he wants to go home. Laban uh, decides he wants to persuade him to stay. So he says, look, name your price. What what wages do you want uh, in terms of goats? And... um, (laughs) And, and even then, Jacob tricks Laban and gets far more than he should. He goes through this whole complicated thing about... Uh, it's all about speckled goats and streaky goats and all of this. And he'll get the speckled goats. It's very complicated. Well, it's, it's quite detailed and long. You can read about it in chapter 30, um, 25 onwards. But basically, Jacob tricks Laban... He tricks him into getting more wages than he would have. In fact, he ends up with more money himself. He's, he's the hired hand. He's the guy who's working for him, and he ends up with most of the wealth. Because more and more of these goats are being born with, with speckles, I think it was, uh, and, and they become Jacob's goats and Jacob's wealth. Laban's left with fewer and fewer, uh, not much at all. Laban and his sons start to realize this, that something is going wrong a bit. They start to get a bit angry about it. And uh, Jacob thinks it's probably his time for me to leave right now. Things are getting a little bit uh, a little bit hairy. So, in chapter thirty-one, he flees. He goes to his wife, wives Rachel and Leah, and he lies to them about what he's done. He doesn't say, "Oh, I've tricked them." He says, "Oh, God's on my side. God's been giving me more wealth, more goats um, than your father." Um, you know, he's. Um, God's clearly on my side. Laban's obviously the one in the wrong. That's why God's punishing him. God's blessing me, which wasn't the case at all. He was totally manipulating the situation. And so he lies to Jacob and Lear about it, uh, makes up some story about a dream that he's had, which shows that. And um, he also claims that Laban's cheated him out of money by changing his wages ten times. Although there's no indication of that anywhere else, so that, you've just got to, you know, that's Jacob's word for it. Um, in any case, Jacob seems to be pretty well off, and he's, he's, about, to, he's about to go. He's going to leg it. At that point, Rachel also then steals some household gods off her father, I guess sort of statues and things like that as they leave, without telling him. And that nearly gets her killed as well, because um, Jacob says, well, look, if anyone's stolen that, you can kill them. And she only gets away with with it by, again, being deceptive herself uh, and sitting on on them and saying, I can't stand up um, because I'm having my period, so I can't stand up. Uh, And so you go, all right, then, (laughs) I'll stay well clear. Um, The whole thing is just deception after deception after deception. At this point in chapter 32, Jacob knows he's going to have to face his brother Esau again, who was going to kill him. He's understandably scared. What he decides to do is send his servants ahead of him with all these goats that he's, he's accumulated, and he says, "Look, just go. The first servant can go and just get, give give Esau some goats." And when he says, "Well, what's that all about?" he said, "Oh, it's from your brother Jacob. He's coming soon." He said, and then the next servant can go, give some more goats. And, and what's all this about? Oh, it's Jacob. He's coming soon. So I'm almost sweet-talking, softening him up a bit so that he's, he's going to be all right when he meets him. He's just such a coward as well. You know, he's not straight out there, right, okay, I've, I've done wrong. He's not confessing his sins. He's not saying, look, I've repented. He's just trying to get around him by, by throwing wealth at him. Not at all pleasant, You can see why I don't like this man. (laughs) It's then that we come to quite a famous part in Jacob's life. Jacob wrestling with God, or, or an angel from God. And that's in chapter 32 and verse 22. Let's quickly look at this. Chapter 32, verse 22. This is after Jacob sent all the gifts, but he's not seen Esau himself. He has... Um, this night with God. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maid servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for its daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will be no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he said, well, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Okay. Then Jacob, uh, then Jacob called the place uh, Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Um, so Jacob wrestles with God. He has, this, he has this, this time wrestling on his own, and he's saying to this, this angel, or, or, or whoever it is, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. His, his hip's been put out, he's injured, he's in pain, but he's, he's clinging on, he's saying, I want you to bless me, I want you to bless me. The man said, look, let me go now. No, I want you to bless me. What is the blessing that comes to Jacob? It's not more goats. It's nothing like that. The blessing that comes to Jacob, primarily, it seems, is that he gets a new name. He gets a new name. He is called by the name Israel. Israel. Even then, after this point, Jacob still carries on slipping into old ways he's encountered God a number of times already and he's still slipping into old ways so he meets Esau he deceives him again and won't go into all of that um, in chapter 35 God has to remind him of this new name in chapter 35 and verse um, 9 to 13 I have got down although is that right Yeah, in in verse 9, after Jacob returned, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name's Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. Well, that already happened. It was almost a reminder. Jacob, your name's Israel. Stop doing these things. Stop acting in this deceptive way. What an astounding thing to happen. This man, this this scheming, deceitful man, who is just out for himself the whole time, suddenly gets given the name from God, Israel, which will come down through generations as the name of God's people, the people who God loved, God's chosen people, Israel. This is where it comes from. It's given to this man, Jacob. Why? Why? Why does God love Jacob? We're coming back to the original question. Why does God love Jacob? What is there about Jacob which is lovable? The answer, surely, is nothing. Nothing. He doesn't deserve it. He just clearly doesn't deserve it, this guy. But yet he's been blessed by this name. He's been blessed because God has said, you will have descendants and I will bless them and all nations on earth, everyone on earth, will be blessed by your descendants. God has clearly picked him out and has favoured him so much. But yet in and of himself, there was absolutely nothing to commend him. That is God's amazing grace. That is God's amazing grace. Jacob didn't deserve to know his favor on his life, and the truth is, neither do we, neither do we. Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you were looking for something to commend yourself to God and say, "God, I am, I' have done this, this and this." you know, why don't you bless me because I'm, you know, I'm a great person, I'm a good person, whatever. God would look and his judgment is for all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. What have we done to deserve God's grace on our life? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. But the verse goes on to say, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of... ...that came by Christ Jesus. We do not live up to God's holy standards. Neither did Jacob. Easy to see in other people, isn't it? Easy to see when you look at a passage and you think... ...who's this guy? Who does he think he is? But then you turn it on yourself. Who do I think I am? Who do I think I am? We are self-seeking. We're often happy to get what we want by manipulation. Maybe it's low level... These things that people don't know about, we can do it just very subtly. No one will know. We can put on a nice face, but underneath, we're scheming away. We're manipulative. We want even to bring God into our deceit. We can take things into our own hands. Even after we've encountered God powerfully. You know, many of us encounter God in a powerful way, a real way in, in, in God changing our lives. It's still not too hard to slip back into old ways. Yet God keeps his promises and will keep coming back to us. And and like Jacob, far too often we don't realize that God has given us a new name. Just in the same way as he'd given the name Israel to Jacob, we are now known as saints. All the way through the New Testament is this reference to the saints. Who are the saints? Catholics would say, oh, they're special people who, who have done miracles and who have, who have been confirmed this title um, by, the, by the current Pope. But the Bible says, no, saints are those who trust and give their lives to Jesus, give their lives to God. We are the saints. We're saints. That's God's new name for us. We are new creations of Christ. God has fundamentally changed who we are. He didn't just fancy giving us a new name. He doesn't just say, oh, right, from now on then, you can be called saints. Enjoy that name. Bit of a nickname for you. You know, you're the same old person, but give you a new name. No, we're fundamentally changed. We're fundamentally different. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul is writing... To the Corinthians, and he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Therefore, we're not bound by the old things which used to bind us. We're not tied to those anymore. We can walk free of them because we're a new creation. We're the saints. We're God's chosen people, in the same way that Jacob was now Israel. Let's not keep going back and living our lives in the same old way. Let's not go back to the old person. No, the old is gone. We've died to that. We've died to that whole way of being. We're new. We walk in a new way by the Spirit. Even as Christians, we can still be affected by so much of the past things that have happened to us in the past, maybe even names that we have been called. In fact, I I think I read somewhere, someone had taken that phrase, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And And they'd said, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names will steal our future. And I thought, actually, that's quite profound. The names that we have been called in the past, the things that have been said over us, can affect us to the extent that it affects our future. Because we, we live no, thinking that is who I am. And we don't actually take on board and, 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 and deal with that and live who God says we are now as new creations in Christ. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I had a brother. And um, my mum used to always talk about us in kind of... I mean, my mum and dad were amazing. <laughs> I must say that in case they're listening to the tape. But they were, they, were, they were absolutely amazing. They brought us up really well. But one of the things that my mum uh, did, and my brother would testify to this as well, is that she kind of categorised us in, in two ways. She said, oh, Mark is the academic one, this is when she was talking to the people, and Neil is the sporty one. Mark's the academic one, and Neil is the sporty one. Now, I heard Neil talking about this a while back, and he said, you know, Mum, because he, he's really good at sport, But he said, you know, I used to think I was rubbish academically. I I just gave up. I just didn't even bother. I didn't bother going to sixth form because I was told I was rubbish. And similarly, I, even though I've grown to enjoy playing sport, at the time I used to thought, oh, I'm not the sporty one. I'm I'm having nothing to do with it. I'm rubbish at it. And I lived years of my life not enjoying sport because I was told I was the academic one. He was like the sporty one. And it's a label and it's put on us and we can live under them. You might be able to think of things in your life as well where someone has said something to you. Someone has said something to you and, and it's stuck. You know, previous leaders uh, have said to me when I, was, I became a Christian, I started, I started doing a bit of preaching, started doing a bit of worship in very early days. And and one of the leaders said to me, you know, he said, Mark, I can see that you'd be a good preacher, but you're not much of a worship leader. And then after that, I was just like under that. You know, leading worship, I didn't really get into it. just couldn't, because I, I, I was living under this word that had been said to me. And we need setting free from those words because they're lies that the enemy would put over us. Because God says, that's not true. That's not who you are. I'll tell you who you are. You're a new creation. You're dearly beloved sons and daughters. You're adopted into my family. You have access to the throne room. You have my spirit living and working within you. Who can perform miracles? And there's the same power there as that which raised Christ Jesus from the dead. All of this truth which the, the word of God tells us, this is who we are now, saints. And yet we've still got this thing in the back of our minds. Now, I'm, I'm rubbish at this. I can't do this. I'll never do anything up front. I'll never be, I'll never be able to, to, to talk to anyone about God. Because I'm an, I'm an introvert. Labels, labels, labels. It's lies. It's lies from the enemy which is just designed to hold us back. To keep us captive in something which God has set us free from. We can walk free. We can walk free from these names that have been given to us. They've been cut off. We don't have to live that way any longer. Romans 6 and chapter... No, Romans chapter 6. sums it up, really. What shall we say, then? Shall we go on sinning, that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God, we too may live a new life. We can be the people that God wants us to be and have these strongholds broken in us, even if they've been with us all our lives, even if we're nearing the end of our lives because Jacob was... You might, maybe if you look through these chapters in Genesis... ...you, you might notice that um, even after God gave Jacob this new name, Israel... ...many times he's still, after that point... ...he's still referred in Genesis as Jacob. Very occasionally is he referred to as Israel. I did a quick count, which is easier now. You've got the internet and things, uh, things like that i will do it for you. Sixty-five times after God has said, your name is now Israel... 65 times he's referred to in the text as Jacob. Because that is when he's still acting as Jacob. He's still the same old man. He's still doing all the same old deceptive stuff. He's still tricking his brother and saying, Oh yeah, I'll follow you. I'll go, yeah, we are reconcile now. I'll go back to your house. And he lets him go and then, well, I'm going somewhere else. And uh, Deceiving all the time still. 21 times only is he referred to as Israel. Most of those times are when we see him. In fact, all of those times, I would say, are when we see him believing in God and moving in faith. So we come right back to where we began, Hebrews 11 and verse 21. We come to this part of the story. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, took until he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. What was it that he did when he was dying? He blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. This passage, in Genesis, he is known as Israel the whole way through. Because he's living as to who he now is. Why is this blessing, Joseph's sons, a step of faith? Well, very briefly. Because he'd learned that with God, things didn't work in the natural way. Things didn't have to go with his preferences. He gave a greater blessing to Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, instead of his older one, Manasseh. And that upset Joseph. So he's ble- this whole thing about the firstborn getting the blessing, and, jo- and Jacob's crossing his arms, and he's just so that he's blessing the younger one. And, and Joseph's going, no, you've got the wrong one. And, and Jacob's going, no. I see what God's doing here. I'm seeing in faith. I know who God wants me to bless. The blessing is going to come through this younger one, through Ephraim. And Joseph's upset about it. It It's the same as with him and Esau, really. The blessing comes through the younger one. The way Jacob did it was try and manipulate, manipulate, manipulate in order to get it. Now he's seeing this is what God's doing. So I'm just going to bless it. I'm just going to see what God's doing, and I'm going to bless it. He also uh, gave a greater blessing to his own son, Judah, than he did to Joseph. Now, Joseph was his favorite, one of his favorites. He gave him the coat. If Jacob had been acting instead of Israel acting, he would have made sure that the Messiah would come through the line of Joseph and not through Judah. Especially as Judah was the one who, in the story of Joseph, had agreed to sell Joseph into slavery. He was the bad guy in that. So, But instead, he's getting the blessing. Romans 5.20 says, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This was true here. Israel is hearing God and seeing that God's ways don't always follow in the natural way of the world. And what about him leaning on the top of his staff? Well, seems a bit of an odd detail, doesn't it? He's worshipping leaning on top of his staff. Well... I don't believe that detail is there by chance. It mentions it again in Genesis 47, 31. I believe it shows how Jacob, or Israel, has come to realize that God is in charge and he isn't. He's not standing on his own. He's not making the decision himself. He'd already got this problem with his hip because God was was saying, stop doing it yourself. Lean on me. And so I guess from that point he had a staff. He'd been limping since then, making it hard for him to stand. But now he's saying, "I'm going to worship you, God, and I'm going to lean on you. I'm leaning on top of my staff. I'm going to not just try and do it all myself. This is faith. This is what we are called to. Maybe God's caused things to happen in your life to bring you to the point of leaning totally on Him. Maybe you still have got that lesson to learn. But God will want us to bring to us to that, Him to that. Will want to bring us to that point. He wants us to trust totally in Him." Not to just try and change things or work things. You know, oh, I've, I've got this, you know, I'm in the church. I really fancy being a core group leader. I'll just manipulate my way. Just under, undercurrents, you know, just say nice things to the right people. Present myself in a good way. Maybe I'll get the position. No. We should trust totally in God. God will do what God wants to do. Jacob learnt it right at the end of his life. Yet the other amazing thing about this, and I'll finish on this, is God totally mended his broken past. God gives the impression that, that all Jacob's manipulation and scheming and deception was predestined by him in the first place. It's almost as though God is endorsing what Jacob is doing. It's almost as though... Because God is bringing his purposes about through this. God's purpose was to bring... The line, the blessing through Jacob and through his descendants, not through Esau. Jacob went about it in totally the wrong way. But that's what God wanted. So is God saying, oh, that's okay, you can do all of those things. I'll, I'll just put a rubber stamp on it. No, I don't believe he is. But God is mending his past. Jacob would have been able to see what Paul says in Romans eight twenty-eight. And this is the ESV version. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God took the blame for Jacob's actions and he absolved him of all guilt. And you can read it and think, how could it work out any better? How could God have done it in another way? it's worked out fine. God does that with us too. We're not written off when we make mistakes. God brings forgiveness. You think, "Oh, but I'm a Christian. I shouldn't have done that. Oh, there's no way back." Yeah, there is. There's a way back. Come to the foot of the cross and receive the forgiveness that Jesus poured out by giving his life. And we're back. We're restored. And the past is gone. Whatever we've done is gone. God in his grace makes our foolishness look like his idea. Once he's forgiven us, he doesn't want us to feel guilty about it. But he does keep leading us on gently to trust him. So that we, like Jacob, can be men and women of faith. And so do we have to like Jacob? Do we have to read This account of Jacob and think, oh yeah, he's a good guy. No. I don't think we have to like Jacob. I don't think that's what the point of this is at all. I think the point is that it shows us a God of grace. And that we're to love God more and more. The more we see of this amazing grace, the more we see how he can take the worst sort of people and say, but I'm going to use them. In fact, you're going to be my main guy. My main man. What amazing grace. And God can do that through us too. If you're feeling, who am I? Who am I? I've messed it up. I'm worthless. Who knows what God has got for you? Maybe it's offensive to other people around. When you see someone raised up and you think, how come God's using them so powerfully? It's grace. It's the same thing that brought you to a relationship with God as well. Because they don't deserve it, and you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. But he's wonderful and gracious.